When I was a kid, this is true for most of you, I think, too, because most of you are old enough to remember this. When I was a kid, there was a television show called To Tell the Truth. How many of you remember To Tell the Truth? And To Tell the Truth, there'd be three, three people uh, coming together on the show uh, that would be in chairs, and they were, two were imposters, and one was somebody who had really done something unique. They weren't so well-known, but there was one person who was really the person of interest, and two imposters. I mean, you had to do something unique, like, in 1953, this person was the first person to climb Mount Kilimanjaro barefoot, or something like this. And then and the, there was a panel that had to listen and interview, and they could ask different questions, and they had to decide who was telling the truth and who were the imposters. And it was hosted by Bud Collier. Uh, you remember this? Bringing back memories for some of you? There were different people on the show through the, through the years, but the, the main ones that I remember, Bud Collier was the host, and that's him standing in the back there. And panel members, uh, some of the originals were Tom Poston there to the left, and then Kitty Carlisle's in the middle, and Orson Bean is there on the right, and they all still look exactly like that today. Now, they don't, they don't look like that today, and neither do we look like we did back then. And, the, and do you remember the way this show always ended? The, they would ask all these questions, and, and then you would be asking questions, and you would, as a, in the audience at TV, you would guess who you thought the right one was, and you'd all be sitting in the living room, and it's kind of like house hunters today. Like, they're going to pick number two, they're going to pick number one, and then you'd guess which one was telling the truth. And at the end, Collier would always say, okay, will the real barefoot mountaineer or whatever was going to be. Please stand up. And there would be like a pause, right? Remember this? The three, of, the three people would sit in there and then a fake would kind of half stand and sit back down and then the other one half stand and sit back down and the real guy would half stand and sit back down and then the real mountaineer would stand up and everybody would say, oh, I knew it was you, you know. It was fun. It was a cool show. I have a question to introduce for us today. It's one that's related to the wristband you're wearing. It's a question that many of us ask, maybe most of us ask. We don't always feel free to ask it in public, but it's a question that circles in our minds. And the more, interestingly enough, at least in my experience, the more we read Scripture and the more we learn about God, especially in the whole counsel of Scripture, the more this nagging question shows up. And here's the question I want to ask today. You ready? Will the real God please stand up? Because there are many ideas of who God is, and we've heard a lot of them. Like, here are some. I'll offer the quote, and then I'll tell you who was saying it. All about God. God is silent now, if only man would shut up. Anybody know who said that? Woody Allen. Woody Allen's got some great quotes about God. Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes, do you think there's a God? Calvin, well, somebody's out to get me. (laughs) Calvin and Hobbes. This one, a little more serious. The idea of God, infinity or spirit, stands for the possible attempt at an impossible conception. It's a possible attempt at an impossible conception. That's Edgar Allan Poe. 
I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. Some of you will know this quote. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. Another quote by the same person. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Anybody know who made those quotes? John Lennon, the famous Beatle. God is a circle whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. God is a comedian playing to an audience that is too afraid to laugh. Voltaire, both of those quotes. I believe in God, only I spell it N-A-T-U-R-E. Anybody know the source of that quote? He, he, he designed our community center over here. Yeah, Frank Lord Wright. God is really only another artist. He invented the giraffe, the elephant, and the cat. He has no real style. He just goes on trying other things. One of my favorite artists, Pablo Picasso, said that. And then a contemporary, a novelist, I don't believe in any actual thinking God that marks the fall of every bird in Australia or every bug in India, a God that records all of our sins in a big golden book and judges us when we die. I don't want to believe in a God who would deliberately create bad people and then deliberately send them to roast in a hell he created. But I believe there has to be something. Stephen King, author Stephen King. And the confusion only gets furthered, it seems, by our own Bible. Just being honest here. Because in the Old Testament, we can, at least at first glance, we, it's easy to go to the Old Testament and we don't read exclusively about this God, this temperament of, this divine temperament in the Old Testament. But it seems like it's the dominant one, the predominant one, is a God who can appear to be vengeful and intolerant, murderous. A crusader who doesn't mind saying to his people, go into that town and wipe out the army, the navy, the air force, the people, the children, the cats, the dogs, the mice, the fleas, everything. Leave nothing. Really, the babies? Disturbing. The great, well-known Richard Dawkins famous atheist, aggressive atheist, in The God Delusion writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, emphaticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomanic, you know what I mean, Sodom, Sodom, yeah, he's a dude, he, he, capriciously malevolent bully, he refers to him as. Honestly, I really practiced that before I preached it, but it just, the Old Testament seems to add to the confusion because the question keeps ringing. Will the real God please stand up? 
Everybody's confused by this. But then that's the Old Testament. The New Testament seems to present a very, very different idea of God, doesn't it? Don't you find that to be true? One thing's for sure, and Anne Lamott, who lives here in our county, an author, captured it. Whatever we believe about God, you can safely assume, she says, you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Yeah. <laughs> and for some of us, that's our understanding of God. Certainly, we live around people, and that's our understanding of God, defined by who's in and who's out, defined by who he hates. I can't imagine how that breaks God's heart to be so misunderstood. I think God's fine with us saying, Woo, you sure have made your, you sure have challenged us trying to understand you. And I sure don't understand some of the things I read in the Old Testament and how they line up with what I read in the New Testament. You're baffling me. I don't think God minds that at all. But to be misrepresented, um, so deeply misunderstood, must hurt him the same way it hurts us, or even maybe more. Will the real Jehovah please stand up? And then if you look at the panel and you look over at the guests on the show, this list, this evil, vindictive control freak and this God who's sort of passive and lost, this history sort of happens to him. He doesn't happen to it. And there's a third person sitting there that's been answering questions. Will the real Jehovah please stand up? And if you look over there, you're going to see one kind of faking it, and another one's half standing, and another one's half standing. And when that question is asked today, you know who stands? Jesus. Jesus stands up. Will the real God please stand up? And it's Jesus. All the rest is unclear and confusing. And that's the one clear message and example we have of God. Jesus has been painted on the canvas and framed and hung in the center of the wall. And we discover, for some of us, we rediscover that Jesus and God are the same person. Would you stand for the reading of the Gospel of John? Now we've been reading this, different portions of it, for the last three weeks. This is the fourth week. And I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 18. Today we're dealing primarily with verse 18. Um, but we'll read all of these texts now together because we've been breaking them up as we progress through these weeks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to, 
the light. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally pitched his tent among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired and therefore reliable message to us. Go ahead and take your seats. Jesus and God are the same person. Just point out a few places where that's made clear. Now this is hinted at, implied or inferred in the Old Testament. And it's pasted all over the New Testament, not just in the Gospels, but also in the epistles, uh, in the later in the books after the first four. That Jesus and God are the same person. But here are some places this is communicated just here in John. You've probably already seen them. I'm just going to point them out again. In, in the first verse, which isn't the, our primary focus today, you have that text that says, in the beginning was the Word, and later, as that's unpacked, we understand that's a reference to Jesus, the Son, God the Son. And the Word was with God, and then the Word was God. So you have uh, the, 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 the verb to be, the Word was God. It's like having an equal sign there. It's the past tense, but it's an equal sign. The Word and God, same person. And then in the first part of verse 18, No one has seen God. And this translation reads, translates it this way, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. That's, that's wordy and it's trying to make sense of what's really there in the original language. The original language is literally like this. But the uniquely begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So you have this begotten language, which we know from the text is already talking about the Word, who is Jesus. So you have this, he's uniquely begotten, the one and only begotten God. That's, lit, that's actually there. Who was in the bosom of the Father. You have this closeness, this attachment, this connection. I know what it's like to have a child as a son. I do not know the, the incredible bond that must take place when a woman carries a child in her bosom. They're one. She feeds him. They're connected. He or she comes forth from mother and for a long time doesn't like being away from mother. 
There's this closeness fathers will never have, which ours is different, but there's, there's a bond we can't quite understand. And so you use, he uses that language to, to express to us probably the best language the text can come up with. Because language fails us when we're describing God, just as the quotes implied. He's the one and only uniquely begotten God. You would expect the language, the only begotten Son. Because Jesus is Son of God, right? You would expect Son. So the fact that it doesn't say Son, that it says God, which is risky and disturbing and theologically um, dangerous, the fact that it's still there gives us a sense. They would have tried to smooth that out if editors were trying to make it nicer as they went on. And over copy, over copy, over copy over the years, you might expect the only begotten Son because he's called the begotten Son. But the fact that this is the only begotten God, the author is trying to say, like it or not, I'm clearly trying to say, I'm easing us up to the fact that Jesus and God, same person. Same person. In fact, the oldest manuscripts do have only begotten God. Another translation puts it this way. He who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Clear reference to Jesus, attached to a very clear statement of divinity. Jesus and God are the real person. When we say, will the real Jehovah please stand up? Will the real God please stand up? Will the real real Yahweh please stand up? Jesus stands up. In the last part of verse 18 comes, in my opinion, the most powerful and convincing reference. No one has ever seen God. So you have John 1, and then you have these two in John 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, who is person, Son, who is Himself God, closer relations with the Father. Here's, here's the text. He has made Him known. Literally, that could be, that's, that's a good translation. What it literally says is he has exegeted him. Jesus exegetes God. When we exegete a sentence, we reveal what's in the sentence. You know the word? It's not a word that's real common for us. Exegete this sentence for me. Tell me what's in there. When we exegete a text, we unpack and display what's in the text. For those of us who are pastors and teachers of Scripture, the great challenge for us is to exegete the passage. And we go to the passage and we dig into the passage and we try to figure out what the passage is saying. And then when we exegete it, we, we come to you and say, here's my exegesis. Here's what it says. When we exegete a poem, we lead or draw out the true meaning of the poem. We try to reveal what's buried in there so that it's more easily seen, grasped, understood. And then there are other uses of the word in Scripture that give us some hint as to what the text means when it says, no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus, he exegeted him. Done. In Luke 24, you have Jesus being recognized by men on the road to Emmaus, exegeted. We exegeted him, we recognized him. Same word, that's the translation, give a better sense of what it means. You get that? 
In Acts 15, it says, Simon described to us, and then it goes on. But that word described, exegeted to us. In Acts 21, we're told that Paul came to the disciples and reported in detail, exegeted. So Jesus exegetes God. He reveals God. He unpacks him. He draws out his true meaning, meaning he makes God recognizable. Jesus describes him. Jesus reports God in detail, brings us face to face with God. When you're face to face with Jesus, you're face to face with God. Why? Because according to Scripture, not just in John, all over the New Testament, Jesus is God. So let me offer a couple of takeaways from that truth. Because what's the big so what of that? That's the Christmas message. Emmanuel. Not, not God's emissary with us. God with us. Here's one point. Just some applications, some takeaways. When you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Now that's obvious. But start thinking like this. This is helping me. This isn't about pretending the things we read in the Old Testament that are disturbing, frankly, that are assigned to God. Doesn't, it, this isn't about pretending that those things aren't there. It isn't about saying, well, what we read in the Old Testament is sort of Scripture, but not really Scripture. Only the New Testament is Scripture. The Old Testament just is an accurate representative historical fact. It's not about that. But we know that logically, the clear message always trumps the unclear message. Both of them can be true. But when they are at odds with each other or appear to be at odds with each other, don't we always apply that logic? What's clear trumps what's not clear. We're not deciding that one's true and one's not. One's more true and one's not. But when you have a very clear explanation, when you say, will the real God stand up and Jesus stands up, that's a clear statement. Jesus gave us clear teaching. We have a lot to learn and to know about the life of Christ. He in the Sermon on the Mount said, look, whatever's confusing, whatever you don't understand, whatever doesn't make sense, whatever disturbs you, whatever you're frustrated with, here's, can I state it any more clearly? Forgive your enemies. Live with peace on earth. Stand against oppression. Let me heal the broken relationship between you and your Father. I've came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. I want to be clear about that. When you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The clear always trumps the unclear. And we apply that rule all throughout life. When you see a sign that said, you may or may not be able to make a right-hand turn at the light, and then another sign next to it that says, right-hand turn permitted, didn't we just do that? The first sign is frustrating and confusing, the second sign is clear, and the clear trumps the unclear. I just wish we could put one of those second signs at that light up by Costco, <laughs> where I see one out of four people turning right on the red anyway. I don't. You know why? Because I paid the $250 ticket already for forgetting it. <laughs> Ooh, man, that was unjust. Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back. That ain't going to happen. I'll tell you that right now. 
When you want to see God and what he looks like, just look at Jesus. He is the clarifier. He exegetes him. All biblical notions of the character and heart of God, get this now, must be understood in light of the life and teachings of Jesus, not the other way around. So the stuff in the Old Testament, and I'm with you, that doesn't make sense, that bothers me, that embarrasses me. Maybe you don't put, in that, put, and put that strong language on it. I do. It embarrasses me, potentially anyway. What in the world were you thinking, God? Why, why would you ordain that? That's confusing. That must be understood in light of what's clear. And God says, here's who I am. You look at Jesus, you look at me. Nose to nose, eye to eye, face to face. Is that clear, Art? Mm-hmm. But what about that? We'll get to that later. That somehow makes sense. Just not today. It's disturbing today. Here's Jesus. Here's God. That's the God we worship. Second takeaway, when God sent his son, he sent himself. The mystery of the Trinity will remain a mystery. You know what mysteries are? They're things that are true and you can't understand them. Love is a mystery. I feel it, it's a fact. I can't explain it, I can't understand it. Taste is a mystery. I said that one of my favorite artists was Picasso. Some of you are saying, what in the world are you drinking? Noses just don't go there. They go up here, you know. Taste is a mystery. We can't understand it. We just experience it. Uh, some of you love the new colors in the building. Some of you don't love the new colors in the building. This is taste. It's a mystery. Go explain it to me. Laughter, comedy is a mystery. Think about this. What makes something Funny. And what is funny? It's a mystery. We know it's there. It's a fact. We can't really explain it. Trinity is a mystery. There is one God, somehow expressed, and expressed is not actually a good theological term, but language fails us. We see him in three persons. One God. Father, with a specific function or tendency. Son and Holy Spirit. All God. Not God 1A and 1B. It's actually theologically inappropriate to say, I thank God and Jesus, because you just think it was redundant. Now you can say, I thank the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each of which is somehow a more detailed expression of the one God. And that's a mystery. But when God sent Jesus, he sent himself. And I love that notion. I mean, I am important enough to you. You didn't just lift your divine finger and say, hey, you and you and you, go fix that. Go love on art. Go love humanity. Go lead the church. You got up out of your throne and you came yourself? That's pretty special. Emmanuel. Not some really important, virtually divine being with us. God with us, face to face. And in case you're wondering, I just want to make it clear. The church doesn't believe that in some uh, figurative way. We 
literally. Now, I don't mean like pigs literally flew across the room literally. I mean literally, literally. That God took on a human body and suffered through dirty diapers and dirty dishes and stubbing his toe and dealing with pressures of adolescence and working in his father's shop and became actually human and then struggled with every kind of temptation and insecurity a human being struggles with. There's no issue that we have in life that tends to derail us or tries to derail us that Jesus doesn't understand. And came to earth and pitched his tent and said, I'm going to walk in the same dust you walk in, but I'm going to show you how you were always intended to live. Literally. That was God walking the earth. When Jesus left the footprint, it was a divine footprint. When he sent his son, he sent himself. Third takeaway. So when you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. That's the clear message we have. All the other signs can be a bit confusing, and they will make sense someday. They don't today, not to me. But Jesus does. When God sent his son, he sent himself. And when we desire God, because many of us do that. Some of you expressed it on thanks, that Thanks Sunday where we talked about what we're thankful for. That there's this longing for God inside of us and all the things that, that God represents. But when we have a desire for God, our desire is satisfied through Jesus. Jesus, when, when the world cried out for hope, God's answer was Jesus. When impoverished people cried out for a chance in life, God's answer was Jesus. When fear was dominating human beings over and over again, and kings were oppressing them, and nations were knocking them down, and systems were failing them, God's answer was Jesus. If in you there's a longing for God, and that's as specific as you have ever been to describe it. If you're like Stephen King, uh, maybe you won't say the same things he said at first, but maybe you would. But at that last line, there's got to be something. I know there's something. The answer is Jesus. And stop me, by the way, when I say something about Jesus that you don't like, that you wouldn't want to be affiliated with, like ending racism, like justice for all, like real freedom, like personal choice, even the freedom to choose to reject him, like true friendship, faithful friendship, reliable friendship, hope, and justice, and mercy, and forgiveness. Stop me now when I say something not worth having. I'm not hearing you stopping me. Like abundant life, not just life. Like care for people with whom you disagree and loving them because they're human. Come on, now stop me because it's so bad to be a Christian. No good to follow Christ and all he's trying to do is give people hope. Like justice means justice and fairness means fairness. And there's a future for people and a better earth and a better world. And one day he says, you light this candle today, but one day we're going to light a candle 
that does away with all hope of having to ever light a candle again because one day I'm coming. And he's not coming to, with a whip to bust people up and lay it right across their backs. He's coming with justice and rightness and goodness and fairness and all that's broken will be glued back together. And guess what? Until that day, I said when people cried out for hope, God's answer was Jesus. But listen now, when people cry out for Jesus, you know what God's answer is? It's the church. Oh, Lord, we're in trouble then. No, we're not. It's the church. Standing over at the mall ringing bells. It's the church reaching out to a school that needs help and saying, you can have whatever we can offer you. It's the church visiting San Quentin. Not the funnest place in the world to go, but one of the neediest. It's the church saying, here, I'm going to take every expression of my wealth and I'm going to invest it in people who don't have enough. I got a little bit overboard. Listen now. You desire God. That desire is satisfied in one place and in one person, according to Scripture. And that's Jesus Christ, whom we serve, whom we follow, whom we love, whom we emulate. Let me end this message the same way I started it with some quotes. First from Rob Bell. These are all Christians, these three. Some of the first ones were. In Velvet Elvis, he says, The moment God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we are no longer dealing with God. He is a mystery. And yet, he has made himself clear in Jesus. Donald Miller. I believe this comes from Blue Like Jazz. I can no more understand the totality of God than a pancake I made for breakfast understands the complexity of me. And then one many of us adore C.S. Lewis. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Then he says this, unless you know God as that, immeasurably superior to yourself, unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. But in the pursuit of God, we know this for sure. From John chapter 14. It says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered Philip, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has in effect seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, Jesus wasn't confused. He was communicating. Here you go. Here's God. All the power to stop everything that's happening. 
Well, you know what? You were too important to him for him to stop. You were more important to him than he was to himself. That's hyperbole, but you get my point? How can you say, show us God? I am God. I think it might be time this Sunday for some who are among us with a hunger for God, a longing for the divine, an awareness that something's broken and it needs to be fixed, to admit that this thing that's drawn me, I need to respond to it. And maybe this is the day, and I'm going to give you a chance in just a second, that you do what most of us have done, what I did in January 1975, and say, in effect, before I understand you, in fact, I'll never understand you, okay, crazy as it is, I want you. I want to give myself to you. This is how I'm going to invest my life, following Jesus. I have constructed a prayer that we're going to put up on the screen, and I'm just going to give you a second to be silent. And I'll pray it out loud, but think about it for a second. And I want to encourage you to make that prayer your prayer if you haven't already received Christ as your Savior. As many as received him, he came to his own, his own didn't receive him, but as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, son or daughter of God. Sins forgiven, broken relationship with God, repaired, new vision for life, modeled by Jesus. And that prayer is this. Dear Jesus, I have known you to be a good teacher. I now understand you to be much more than that. You are my rescuer, my hope, my friend, my leader. Now I understand that you are also my God, the one to whom I now surrender my will and my agenda. I now understand that when I look at you, I am brought face to face with him.